Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Nancy Hill from 2008 to 2017 after working in the agency world for quite a while. Nancy Hill became CEO and president of the 4As, which is America's main advertising agency body. Nancy, welcome. Hi. It is so good to have a chat with you. There's obviously a couple of topics that we're going to talk about, and it's hard not to start with a very broad question, which is, what on earth is going on with advertising agencies right now? Well, there's a lot of things going on. I think uh, what I see in my practice, which is primarily with independent agencies, is they're busy, they're in demand, uh, they have managed to figure out how to get paid, I'd say, pretty well on a project basis. There's a lot less AOR assignments out there. And I think what you're seeing for a lot of the holding company agencies is still a struggle as to how to organize themselves, how to work best with clients, certainly how to work best with other agencies, and how to make sure that they're getting compensated uh, fairly. A large part of that, I think, is because they relied so long on AOR assignments. And as things are moving much more toward project-based work, it's hard for them to steer the ship. What was the remit or what is the remit of the 4As? The remit of the 4As is and always has been in over 100 years that it's been in existence is to be the voice for advertising agencies in the U.S., whether that is in the public domain and in terms of talking about how agencies work, how they should get compensated, how to work with them, how to conduct a pitch process, and all of those things that go into the business of running an advertising agency. To also be the voice in Washington, what a lot of people don't realize is that the 4As, like a lot of other trade associations, have staffers in Washington who are our voice with regard to legislation um, and regulation. Uh, and I think the things that are important that people don't even think about, I always used to describe it, it's kind of like a utility. You don't know that they're there until it's not working. Uh, so when you flip the switch and your lights don't come on, you notice the electric company, but otherwise you don't. Mm. And it, it kind of works the same way with um, advocacy groups and the trade associations are advocacy groups at their core. Mm. I'd say the other thing that's important about trade associations and certainly uh, about the 4As is bringing the community together to talk about things. So one of the things that I always believed my job was is to get the right people in the right room to talk about the right things and get shit done. And that's what we were there to do. Mm -hmm. When you took over in 2008, I don't know if you did what the fancy people call a listening tour, but how did you work out what you thought the forays and the industry needed at that time? And what conclusions did you come to in that first year? So it started with the reason I took the job. I had been one of the very vocal people complaining about the trade association, the forays, having gotten old and dusty and not really represented how I saw myself in the industry and how I saw the agencies that I was either working at or running prior to taking this job. And the chairman at the time uh, was heavily recruiting me to take the job. And I kept saying, I don't want to work at a trade association. I'm sorry, I never saw myself doing anything like that. I'm an agency wonk and I really want to stay in an agency. But I had a long think about it. And 
one of the things I said to myself was, okay, maybe it's time to put your money where your mouth is and see if you can get in there and, and help make it more relevant and less dusty and bring it into the current century. So that was the reason I took the job. So I started from there. And then I did go out and do a, a listening tour. I went to cities all over the U.S., not just in New York, not just in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Chicago, but I went to Atlanta and I went to Kansas City, Omaha, and I went to St. Louis. Those are the markets that I think had been feeling a bit neglected by the organization. And in one particular instance, uh, when I got with, together with a group of agency leaders in a, in a particular city, the person stood up and said, I, I want to welcome Nancy. Uh, no head of the forays has ever been here to talk to us before. I just found that sad on one hand. And on the other, I understand it, uh, if you think about it, because the big money comes from the big holding company agencies, which tend to be on the coast. But the bulk of the membership in numbers are those mid-sized independent agencies who are doing great work in, in their own markets and for their clients that probably fly under the radar screen. Mm. I love visiting those places and it's always so surprising. That's, that's the one thing I think that people who don't grow up in America and probably people in America don't quite understand is that America is really good at community and it's really good at local things. And you just need to look at the AAF and AMA and all the chapters for professionals as well as in colleges. There are hundreds of these chapters around. Yep. And I visited some of them in places like, like Baton Rouge, uh, north of Minneapolis for the AIGA, and they're electric. Yeah. And, and these people... They're doing great work and they're very excited about what they do. They're not beaten down and jaded. I don't know if it's, you know, from the city itself, New York, or if it's from the community that exists there or how competitive it is. But you go to some of these other cities and you talk to these people. First of all, they all like each other. Yeah. They all support each other. They have an attitude about, uh, you know, if somebody wins a piece of business in this community, it helps us all. It's a very energizing thing to go visit those markets. So I did go spend time with them and I listened to them and I, I talked to them about what the organization could be doing to better help them. Oh, I've got such fond memories of little trips to, to places that I didn't, I didn't even know there was a, a marketing or advertising community in some of these places. And they're, yep. they're beautiful. And what you said is absolutely correct. What are some of the other dynamics that you think get in the way of New York and the industry here? I find it really factional. Maybe it's just too big. It's hard to know what's going on. Busyness and self-importance definitely play a role in getting in the way of vibrant supporting community, competitiveness. What else? You don't have to agree with what I said, but what else comes uh, to mind? Well, so just by way of my background, background because it's important to, the, to give some context to what I'm about to say. I spent the first 20 years of my career outside of New York. I started in Baltimore and then I was in St. Louis, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and then I came to New York. So I had a very big career before I got to New York. I ran an agency in San Francisco, but it was so weird that even after that, I'm in my forties, I have a 20 year career. One of the very first questions somebody would ask me is, so where did you go to school? Like, how does that matter at this point? But that's a, it's a, it's a very New York thing to ask somebody that question as if that, okay, I can, I can classify you somehow by whether you went to Dartmouth or Brown or, or Yale or Harvard or Princeton. And I went to a very small college in Ohio that nobody has ever really heard of. And it just was such an odd thing. All those years I'd worked in advertising, nobody really asked you that question until you get to New York. Hmm. Uh, very, for some reason, they want to fit you into some 
category somehow. Yeah, I mean, it's very hierarchically oriented where I think, uh, and I've spoken to a few people on the podcast about this. One recently was Shan Bigelion, who runs strategy at Zenith in New York and was CSO of Publicis Media in China. He's, he's, he's gotten around and mm-hmm. I've spoken to a lot of people and we're sensitive to this if we come from overseas because hierarchy is different. We don't have titles like president, uh, as, <laughs> you know, VP, SVP, EVP, these things that maybe people who grew up in America take for granted. These things don't exist back home and they really exist here to the point that if you want to get a job, you have to be very you have to do due diligence to understand the title you're getting because if you go in too low, people will kind of not treat you very well. Oh, don't get me started on this. You te- I, are you telling me you didn't fix this in your nine years at the 4As? No, I tried. <laughs> um, in fact, I tried to eliminate titles inside the 4As, but oh, you know, it's, easy to, it's easy to be the one champion in that when you're the, the president and CEO because <laughs> everybody else says, yeah, that's easy for you to say. <sighs> but... I will say that I, uh, in working with my clients now, um, where I can, meaning younger, uh, younger in terms of length of uh, being in existence agencies, I counsel them to not fall into that trap because I'll work with an agency that's four or five, six years old, and they'll all, all of a sudden, they already have all these layers. It's like, why are you doing this? One of the unfortunate responses that I get is because we can't attract people if we don't. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really sad that people feel like they have to be so title conscious that they really insist on, I have to have, you know, these four initials or three initials in front of my title in order to feel like I've somehow accomplished something. In my opinion, they should be buying into the culture of the agency that they're going to and the work that they're doing and not worry about that. But isn't that a fundamental, it's not a design flaw of the American culture. It is the design of the American culture, status, hierarchy signifiers because it's the most individualistic country in the world and from the research I've read in countries of abundance people need to stand out to attract resources and that puts more pressure on the individual regardless of whether or not some of this came from certain religious points of view as well so it's all very well to say we shouldn't have titles but they're kind of built into growing up in America, aren't they? I guess. I I don't know. I had an art director I worked with years ago. He was a Brit, though, um, now that I think about it. He used to have a big sign in his office that said, after God and son of God, titles don't mean shit. And he was actually not a very religious person, but his point was that he's just there to do the work and not get caught up in all that stuff. And, And, you know, this goes back to one of the other things that is very near and dear to my heart and important to me is, how we make sure that we're bringing in as diverse a group of people into this community um, as we possibly can and support them and make sure that they are getting all of the resources they need to be successful. And I think, unfortunately, if we continue to measure ourselves by the inflation of our title and people of color, for instance, look at those inflated titles and those are all people at the top and they don't see somebody who looks like them, they give up because they don't feel like they can get up there. So I think one of the things that could help, there's so many things that we need to do to help with that problem. But one thing is that our title structure is daunting because you you look like you have to go up 20 rungs to even get to a place that's of any import. 
and it's all mind games. None of it's real. It's all exactly. It's all, it's all make believe for as serious as we all take them. And yes, you and I have had some big titles. You've had many more big titles. You've had things like CEO of Low New York, EVP, managing director <laughs> of TBO Worldwide, president of Your Holiday, managing partner of TBWHI Day. You've had some big titles, Nancy. What else on the diversity front has stuck with you, and how much has that changed since two thousand and eight? So in 2008, I walked into the middle of the possibility of a major lawsuit that was being threatened uh, by a guy named uh, Cyrus Mary, who was a lawyer in Washington and who successfully brought a class action lawsuit against both Wall Street and against uh, the NFL years ago that in both instances forced those quote unquote industries to deal with some of the practices that had long held people of color back uh, and or in the case of Wall Street women. The industry was scared to death about this potential for a class action lawsuit. The, that class action lawsuit went away for a lot of reasons, uh, not the least of which is that, first of all, they'd have to go after the big agencies. The big agencies all, are all part of holding companies. The holding companies themselves are not employers, and the agencies don't have any money. So you can't go after the holding companies who are the ones with the money because they're not really the employer. He found during his investigation that he really didn't have an entity to go after in order to bring this class action lawsuit around. However, what it did was it put uh, this topic at the top of everybody's list in terms of what are you doing about it? How are you investing in it? What actions are you taking? And so on and so forth. At the same time, there was a human rights commission that was formed in New York City that was bringing the agencies to the table to disclose their numbers, at least to the HRC. I think one of the biggest issues that we have is that we don't measure publicly what's going on in the agencies. And as many times as various organizations, myself included at the forays, have called for measurement and, and get those numbers so that we can measure success, the agencies still are afraid to have those numbers, even if they were put into some sort of, and the forays is really good at this, anonymized data pool that it would never be disclosed where you know this agency or that agency had specific numbers. Until we get to a place where we actually have concrete numbers from which we can look and say, in 10 years, this has changed, I think we're going to continue to have this discussion over and over again because we just don't know. Part of what you were talking about there sounded like the premise of a futuristic dystopian novel, a world in which holding companies don't have people and agencies don't have money. When you, when <laughs> it's true, it's true. <laughs> I know it's it's an amazing. Maybe that's the most creative act our industry has ever done. What the holding companies? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. When you mention the word practice, so and obviously this was you're using someone else's word, and that word was used in accusation of the industry. Can you recall what sorts of practices, which implies some kind of intention, intentional behaviors? What were the practices that were cited in that? What do you call it? Legal. Well, the the potential class action lawsuit yes. or the Human Rights Commission. The potential class action. Um, so th there was a there was a belief, and I'm not going to say whether I think it's right or wrong, but there was a belief that there were inherent intentional racial biases in particular 
and gender to a certain extent, but I'd say in this case, it was racial that either uh, prohibited people from uh, furthering their career or in some instances got them fired. Uh, and that's exactly what the lawsuit was uh, with the NFL. So you're not from the United States, so you may not remember this. And I don't remember what year it was, but let's say it was in the late 90s, early 2000s. There was a class action lawsuit that was brought by a group of African-American coaches who claimed that the NFL had inherent biases that kept them from getting the senior coaching positions in the NFL. That class action lawsuit was brought by the same lawyer, Cyrus Mary, and it was successful. And it changed the way that the NFL went about in their hiring practices. And it created what is now commonly referred to as the Rooney Rule, because Rooney was the commissioner at the time of the NFL. And now, whenever there is a position open in uh, coaching above a certain level, and I don't, I'm not as familiar with what the levels are to tell you what it is, but a slate of candidates must include at least one African-American candidate in order to be considered a good search for this position. Hmm. It has resulted uh, in all these years in many more African-Americans ending up in those positions. I personally have always used the Rooney rule myself when I'm hiring somebody in when I was in that position to hire people who were my direct reports and the people who were in charge of those searches knew that a slate was not complete unless it included a certain number of people of color, a good mix of gender. Otherwise, you're not done with your search. And I'm not going to just look at these three candidates because they're the same old, same old, and they fit the mold. If you think back through the 90s, your 90s at 4As, are there issues or activities connected to diversity that now you think, oh, you know what, I, I should have and could have pushed that harder? I would say that I could have maybe pushed a little bit harder on gender. When I was still there, the Aaron Johnson lawsuit uh, happened at J. Walter Thompson. It, it, what happened was it, was it was a lawsuit that was brought about in federal court. So the fact that it happened in federal court and not state court meant that it was immediately available to the public. And the lawsuit was, uh, I think it was filed on, let's say, a Wednesday. It hit the trades immediately on Thursday and Friday that this major lawsuit had been filed. And that Monday morning, uh, we were opening up our big conference, our annual conference. And the gentleman who was being accused of all this really bad behavior, his face was, was the cover of AdAge that Monday morning. And so if you imagine the broadsheet size of um, AdAge with a man's face, and that's the only thing other than the masthead on that cover. It is now being given out at this conference on the seat of every person, 1,100 people coming to this conference. And I've got to walk out Monday morning and open up the conference. And right up until I was walking out on stage, I had some people from my board saying, you can't go there because it's J. Walter Thompson, it's WPP, all of those things. And I... I just looked at them and I said, you know what? God damn it. I'm a woman. I run the trade association. I can't not go there. So I did. I walked out on stage and I I talked in my opening speech about the fact that the kind of behavior that was described in this lawsuit goes on in the industry all the time. Everybody knows it. And we all turn a blind eye to it. And we can't keep just ignoring this. 
I caught some flack for that. Uh, later that same morning, Maurice came out on stage and made a comment about the fact that he thought it was an isolated incident. So then I had to get back up and say, I'm sorry, Maurice, but I think all the women in this audience would beg to differ with you. And then later that afternoon, Martin Sorrell got interviewed by Satellite and it created a, a swirl around those two men and took, away, took the attention away from what had happened in the industry that I knew was a rampant problem. And this was, by the way, way before Me Too and Harvey Weinstein. How did it take the attention away if you've got more men well, saying more well, things that are obviously untrue? It put the attention on them oh. and their fight and not what was really the pro at the root of the problem, which was that we have a problem in the industry where some of that behavior has just been looked at as wink, wink, it's just hairy, being hairy. I, I think that if I had pushed for some more conversation about that in a much more meaningful way at that time, we might have been a couple of years ahead of where uh, we are now. What, what's the role of the trade publications in this? Because if attention, public attention is shifting, obviously people are covering it and the people covering it are choosing to deflect the attention. I, f I found the trade magazines in the US in general way too close. They're basically copy and pasting press releases half the time. And if they like someone and they happen to set up a, a company, they suddenly get an article and it's like, well, they haven't even done anything yet. Or it's, it's like, tell us about how your company is changing. And you know how hard it is to change an agency. That stuff takes years and years and years and there's this big write-up puff piece about it, but not a lot of critical examination. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's been a problem. I think it's been an ongoing problem. And then every once in a while, I'll see something that's a really well-done piece. Adweek just did a piece on the Martin Agency, and they and they and it's one year later after they had their big public Me Too moment at Martin Agency, and several people lost their jobs. Uh, and now two women are running the Martin Agency, and they, the reporter from Adweek went in and did a, a pretty in-depth interview, not only with the, the two women who are running the agency, but with some other people on staff. And if you read the interview, it, it talks about everything's not perfect, but here's what we're trying to accomplish, warts and all. Mm. Uh, and I thought it was really well done. And I, you, you don't see that kind of in-depth piece, to your point, um, very often, not unlike other media outlets. Uh, they're struggling with their budgets and how much they can pay people and how much time people can go out and visit these agencies and spend time in their agencies and really get a sense of what's going on versus spending a lot of time at industry events and uh, just palling around with people. Yeah, I think palling around seems to be the thing. Like if you look at some of the newer publications, there's Mumbrella in Australia, obviously there's The Drum and DigiDay. I think the three of those come from a British, so English or Scottish journalistic spine and journalism over there is quite bitey <laughs> it's yes it's yes. quite bitey right um that palling around has it always been like that you know if i go back to my early days in the business it wasn't there was there was you know obviously there were bigger budgets they had regional editions of adweek hmm. um so you could there was a mid-atlantic uh edition for instance so if you were in an agency in baltimore or washington or virginia you could see your name in print uh, you know, again, this is pre-internet. So the, I think so much about media itself and how media covers anything, I forget what industry you're in, has changed by virtue of the 24-second news cycle that I, I think there's still a lot of that, you know, we've got to feed the beast constantly. And so to your point about cutting and pasting um, press releases, I think, again, it, being hungry for content and always trying to have something fresh. Mm. I, I'm not saying it's right, 
by the by any stretch but uh you know i think that 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 long thoughtful in-depth reporting we had a reporter here in the united states who was really good at that noreen o'leary who passed away about i'm gonna say five or six years ago but she was incredibly well regarded by everybody but she was also one of those people if she called you you were worried about why she was mm -hmm. calling you uh may there be more of those people <laughs> i know exactly what what if it's us nancy what if it's us <laughs> 2008 I want to go back to this again for the young people in 2008 some bad stuff happened in the economy when nancy when you took over the four a's agencies were emptying out what was that like uh, so I started in February of 2008 and we were just beginning to see that something bad was about to happen, but we didn't know how bad it was going to get. And by the end of 2008, obviously we knew what was, you know, at least we saw where the floor might be, but it was certainly a situation where, um, what most people also don't understand about trade associations is that our revenue, it's based on a, a certain percentage of agencies revenue and it's from the year prior. So it didn't hit us until 2009 when agencies were adjusting, but certainly 2009 and 2010 were really hard. Um, and when you're trying to steer the ship of an organization that is expected to deliver certain things and your budget has just been decreased by, a, a, you know, you have a finite budget for a trade association, you're a nonprofit, um, and your budget's been slashed by 25% through no fault of your own, it, we struggled. The good news is that we as an organization had a reserve that we could rely on, um, that the board very intelligently over the years had said to the organization, you need to keep this much money aside so that you can manage the organization through tough times. Mm. And gratefully, we did have that. The good news was we came out of 2010 much stronger as an organization. We knew where we wanted to put our resources in order to uh, maximize what our members were getting out of it. And we were able to double down on a couple of areas and, and really start to uh, generate revenue that was not so membership reliant. So it was tough. But more importantly, in the broader perspective from an agency world, I had so many people in my office during those couple of years who were middle layer people who had gotten whacked and did not know what to do because they, especially in New York, my conversation would go something like this. Nancy, I, I just lost my job and I got a couple of months severance, but I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'd say, John or Mary, well, have you thought about, do you need to be living in New York? Oh, yes, I have to be in New York. And how much do you need to be making? Well, I need to be making X hundred thousand. Well, let me just tell you a couple things. Number one, those jobs are not coming back. Uh, number two, there is life outside of New York. But what I think has happened, what happened to a lot of people in that particular group of middle management, they'd gotten so used to, if you work hard, you're going to get paid this. And you, you, they set their lives up that way and they couldn't see an alternative. Mm -hmm. One thing that I, I tell young people coming into the industry all the time is that it's a very volatile industry. And for some people, that's really tough because if you're risk averse in any way, um, you don't like living with that uncertainty. But if you love a creative business and you get turned on by the work that you can do and all of the things that it, th this industry can offer you, then your best bet is to make sure that you're doing everything you can to protect yourself 
So if you find yourself in that position, you can live with that thing that just happened. So not living above your means, not living uh, in a way that means that you have to have this job making X amount of dollars. I know it's really easy for me to say that at this point in my life and in my career, uh, but I did always live my life that way. It's tough living in New York. This is another issue that we have. You bring in these young people making entry-level salaries of $40,000, $45,000 a year in New York. That's crazy. On that, there's two things. Uh, one is, you know, there are obviously probably hundreds of millions of people in the world who would love to live in America and sorry, in the United States of America. Uh, people who come from the Americas always correct me on calling the USA America. <laughs> uh, so let me honor that. But one thing that really is amazing is, is if you pause on that New York or LA or Chicago infatuation, compared to the rest of the world, you could live in a relatively, you know, you could live in a smaller place in the USA that's an hour or two from one of the biggest, craziest cities in the world and not live too expensively relative to the big crazy cities, right? And that's quite an amazing thing. Australia, we've got a handful of major cities and that's where yeah. the, the action is and Australia's a long way away. And then the second thing is when you talk about entry-level salaries, when I first moved here, people would point out that it was very difficult to get internships and that you, this is a very flippant comment, this is not my comment, but that you basically had to be rich to be able to afford an internship. So the internship situation has changed a little bit. I don't know when you came to the U.S., but... Seven years. Seven years. Uh, yeah, so the internships now um, are regulated a little bit more heavily than they used to be. At the 4As, for instance, we have one of the largest and oldest internship programs, which is targeted to multicultural students. Uh, it's called the Multicultural Advertising Internship Program, affectionately known as MAPE. And they put over 100 kids through that program every summer. They are paid a fair wage. They're housing is taken care of, their transportation is taken care of, and that's that's what the agencies agree to when they take these internships. In many states, um, they're not allowed to get away with the stuff that they used to get away with, uh, with regard to not paying them or not paying them well. Mm -hmm. The bigger issue is when they do start as a, an official employee, and if you look at the, the entry-level salaries, and let's just say it's $45,000 a year, and everybody I know who's ever been in this industry can tell you to the dime what their starting salary was. Mine was $10,500 a year, so that'll tell you how old I am. Mm -hmm. But at that time, when I started in the industry, the average student loan debt was $3,000. So you do the math, that's 30% of your first year's annual salary. Now you have kids starting at $45,000 a year and the average student loan debt is 30,000 coming out of college. So that's 75% of the first year's annual salary. We have not kept up as an industry with what's going on with these kids coming out of school and what their loan debt is and what they're having to bear. So consequently, they can barely afford their rent. They have to make those student loan payments. They're, you look, they're not participating in 401k. Most of them are not taking advantage of employer insurance comp insurance because they can't afford to pay for it. So they stay on their parents until, 26, until they're 26 years old. To talk to these kids about our quote unquote benefits, unlimited personal time off and all those other things, they don't care about that. They can't barely afford to feed themselves. What's up with that? This is really hard to understand coming from overseas. It's, it's hard not to look at the education system and the healthcare system in America and just write them off as being utterly predatory, even though I love education and I love my college professors and people who learn, right? But yep. it, it just seems wrong because most of these cities, 
the college campuses seem to take up like five to 10% of, they own it. They own five to 10% of the city. I made the numbers up. They own a lot of the cities and they subsidize a lot of housing for professors and that's all, it's all great. It's all great. And increasingly they're moving their own staff onto part-time. There are fewer full-time roles and then the part-time or adjunct professors are getting paid less and less and less. You know, I, I got approached to, to do a semester of training for $4,000 and that would have been about 10 to $15 an hour in New York, right? I was horrified and it seems really predatory. I don't think it's fair. Is there any correction to this? Well, we could do, we could do a whole conversation about this. I, I sit on the, so I sit on the board of directors of the Miami Ad School and I am a trustee at my alma mater. So I have these conversations on a regular basis. I will tell you, so my alma mater, I, by the way, I live in Cleveland now and my expenses here are about a third of what they were in New York City. So mm. sometimes I'm astounded. We go out to a lovely dinner and, and have a couple of drinks and the cost is a third of what it would be in New York. But my alma mater is the kind of school that cares about making sure that kids are coming out with a, a, a good outcome that allows them to get a good job, that they're well-trained, and that they're very aware of what the, the debt is that they're taking on as they're going through the education process. So there's all kinds of counseling built in. You're not going to take on thirty dollars or $40,000 worth of debt to go be a teacher who's not going to ever be able to pay that off. Unfortunately, a lot of schools don't do that kind of counseling with these kids. And if you're starting to talk about people who might be first generation going to college, they also don't have parents to guide them. So I think we as a society have done a terrible job of saying you must get a college education at all costs. Yeah, I remember hearing the author of a book called Bullshit Jobs talk about how in the academic field, there's a lot more administrative roles than ever before. And mm. often it's because people in senior administration roles want people to serve them. So they just hire people and it's not even done with any thought at the same time as they're deprioritizing the people who do the teaching. And it's hard not to make some analogy to what's going on in the holding companies where, again, I've seen discussion from people who've analyzed the numbers. I just can't always put names to it in case I get in trouble. But I think it's worth bringing up that in one particular holding company, someone looked at the numbers and it was something like 60% of the revenue or the money went to the C-level and to administrative, people in administrative roles. Listen, clients are getting hit to that too. And okay. I, I walked into a meeting a year or so ago talking about this and I heard a very prominent client say to an agency person, I don't want to pay for blank CEO's salary. He doesn't work on my business, meaning the top CEO of this holding company. And the trades, on the one hand, we were talking about they do a lot of cutting and pasting, but they publish every year the top uh, C-level salaries of the holding companies because that's public information. And you look at, let's say, the top 20, most of them are finance people and they're not running agencies. And that makes no sense to clients whatsoever. Why do I want to pay for the holding company admin? I get no benefit for that. Clients are saying, I'm fed up with the holding companies. I don't want to work with them anymore. Can you talk to me about planning a little bit? Does planning work in America? Planning does work in America. So, you know, you mentioned that I had worked at TVWA Shiat Day and, uh, you know, Jay Shiat was the, the person who is responsible for bringing planning to America. I'm also old enough to remember before planning came and before Jane came, I have seen the, the brilliance that, that is planning. Now, Jay, being Jay, 
brought Jane Newman here because he thought it would help them sell better work. And, and that was his main selfish reason for doing it. But what I think he quickly found out was that planning really does add to the process. The issue that you have right now uh, is that clients, so if, if clients are working with, let's say, just a, a small average of five agencies, they don't want to pay for planning at five different agencies. And in some instances, you then also have a client who has their own strategy person. So they don't want to pay six different people to do strategy and planning. So I think it's incumbent on the agencies to make the clients understand that planning is part of their process and that it is not something that you can buy ad hoc. The product that you're buying and that you say that you want from this agency happens because several different people look at the problem from several different directions, one of which is planning, and that contributes to this product. The product doesn't just come from the creative people. One of the issues that I have when you listen to um, Mark Pritchard from P&G talking about, we only want to pay for the people who are actually touching the, the creative itself. Yeah, yeah, okay, I hear what you're saying, but it takes a village to create the kind of work that you say you want to buy. It doesn't just come from an art director and a copywriter. How have you seen planning used? You mentioned that there was an initial use case, which was just to sell creative work, which is definitely still a very prominent use case. And that use case often involves planners post-rationalizing work or doing what I don't like. I don't like the name of this, but doing what some people call an upfront. <sighs> uh, what are some of the other use cases that you've seen of planning? Well, you know, let's go back to the sell better work for one second. I think what Jay saw uh, was that it was a way to get clients to buy something without feeling as much risk. So somehow the, the planner and, and that, that whole research process was there to minimize the risk for the client. And, and that's, you know, certainly one thing that it, it can do uh, is minimize that risk for the client if it's grounded in, you know, very specific research. But I also I, think... Let's split that use case into sure. to a subsequent one, which is to buy the creative with less perceived risk. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I totally get it. As, a, as an account person, when planning first came to the U.S., I, of course, just like a lot of other account people, felt very threatened by that because in many instances, it felt like somebody was trying to take away the most fun part of my job. But what I very quickly learned was that if I was there to understand the client's business to the point where I got how they made money and how my client as an individual uh, was motivated themselves and how they were going to be rewarded within their own organization or within their career. That was my role. And I allowed the, the planning partners that I worked with over the years, and I've worked with some of the best, to do their job, which was to really understand the environment in which this uh, messaging was going to be put out there. And the environment is everything from what the consumer thought about it, what the competition thought about it, all of those things. Then we brought those two pieces together and created a better brief for the creatives. I've always been a big believer that being able to clearly define the business problem, and by the way, the client plays a big role in that with the account person and with the planner, clearly defining the business problem that you're trying to solve is the best way to get to good work. 
and every creative I know that I've ever worked with that is good at what they do says, I want to have tighter parameters. If you make it too broad, I can't do great work. Okay. So the main use cases to paraphrase are to sell work with Razzle Dazzle and theater, and then to sell work by providing a sense of less risk. There's still risk, but you're reducing the feeling of it. And then the third one was to really go deep and understand the environment into which the communication of these days, product or whatever it is, will appear, culture, competition, human, consumer user. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and now it's also channels and and what those channels do and what which ones are best used for putting that message out there. And I appreciate your honesty around how planning can feel like a threat or planners can feel like a threat as if they're going to take away the most fun part of the job. Uh, another one that I've heard is people who've not had to have a career with planners and then planners arrive and they've said to me in a moment of sincere confession that they like to be the smartest person in the room. And oh, planner, of course. Yes. And a planner threatens that. So they, I just think especially, they, if, excuse me, but especially if the planner has a, an accent. Hmm. Like a, an Australian draw? Or an Australian or British or any other number. I, can't, I cannot tell you how many times I would say something in a meeting and 10 minutes later, the, the British, very British planner that I worked with, and I worked with a lot of them, would say the exact same thing and the client would just eat it up. Oh God, I think that's a whole other five hour discussion. <laughs> it's, and it, you know what, England, it's a different hiring pool over there. Letting people that go to Oxford and Cambridge and get into advertising, I don't see the same educational backgrounds in America in planning. I think there are well, way, way more many careers to choose from. It's true. And that's another issue that goes back to this whole, we don't pay people enough. And, and that used to be okay mm -hmm. um, when we weren't competing with Google and Facebook and everybody else. Um, but now we are. And those same people that we're bringing in at $45,000 a year, their friends are making 75. Mm -hmm. And after a year, they look at you and they say to you with all sincerity, I cannot afford to work here. Mm -hmm. Last question. Mm -hmm. You do consulting with independent agencies. Is now a good time to start an agency? Yes, it is. It's a very good time. And, and I think it's one of the reasons why you've seen in the last four or five years, so many new agencies come on the scene. Certainly you see people who got basically just got fed up with their own situation inside a, a, a holding company. And I, by the way, I don't mean to slam the holding companies, but what I saw with a lot of my friends was that they felt like they could not make the decisions that were right for their agency because they were being told by somebody else that you had to do it this way. Hmm. And so the, the exodus of senior leadership from some of those holding company agencies to go start their own at that at that time. By the way, that happened right either during or after the recession because that's when a lot of those edicts came down and said, no, you're not allowed to invest in people. We have to cut. And so they basically said, okay, fine, I'm going to go start my own agency. And even now you see some of these really great independent agencies that have just said, we want to do it our way. One of the things that is different about having an independent agency, and let's just take the recession as an example, uh, if you're running an independent agency and that kind of thing happens, you don't have to cut people. You can find other ways to make sure that you're delivering because you're the one who's deciding for yourself how much your paycheck's going to be. Mm -hmm. And so 
I, and, and, and by the way, I had to do the same thing running a nonprofit. Nobody got bonuses, myself included, for those three years because I got to make those decisions. And that way I kept people on staff where, you know, some of the mistakes that I think the holding companies make is we have to get our, our headcount down. Headcount is what we do as an industry. Mm. It's people. And cutting your headcount is never the answer to operating a better business. Uh, what, okay, very, 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 very last question. What are you most proud of in your time at the Forays? I am most proud of making the Forays part of the relevant conversations that were going on in the marketplace and being uh, right, right in the center and not avoiding some of the conversations that others might have tried to avoid in the past um, about diversity, about transparency about talent, about uh, the, the pay scales. Nobody, I think, would point a finger at the organization during my tenure and say they ran and hid, um, because we didn't. We stood up and we advocated on behalf of the industry, and, and I'm proud of that. You know, certainly there are things that we could have taken a step further. There are things that uh, we might have done a little bit differently. But I, I do feel like we had gone from prior to me getting there uh, being, you know, very same old, same old and quiet to kind of being a little bit of a rabble rouser and being there standing up for agencies, which is what I think the organization does best when uh, somebody is willing to do it. Awesome. You know, you know, what I've been reflecting on as we've been talking is that when you were CEO and president of the four A's and when I was working in large agencies, I don't think we could have had this kind of conversation. It would, I think it would have been difficult. And now that we're both independent, we can speak truth in a way where I hope it's really useful to people. And I really value that. So thank you for joining us today on Sweathead, Nancy. Oh, uh, you're welcome. Where can people find you on the internet? Well, usually the best place to find you is uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, my Twitter handle is at NHHill, N-H-H-I-L-L. Um, and I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, and then if you just Google Media Sherpas, uh, you can usually find me. I sadly do not have a website, mostly because I just haven't gotten around to hiring somebody to do it for me. But mm. uh, that's where I am. Well, I'm sure it's cheaper in uh, Cleveland. <laughs> True. <laughs> Get a couple of glasses of wine with it on uh, the side. People ask me where I live and I say on airplanes. There you go. Uh, <laughs> again, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciated the, the chat and best wishes with your consulting work. Oh, thanks, Mark. Peace.